daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, China's foreign minister tells the U.S. to respect China's core concerns. And we're going to take a look at China's latest policy rate cut and whether it signals a possible stimulus. Donald Trump blasts evil and heinous abuse of power after second indictment. And we will finally explore how billions of dollars in COVID-19 relief aid in the United States ended up being stolen or wasted. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching "World Today." Our first story: Chinese Foreign Minister Qing Gan has called on the United States to respect China's core concern and stop meddling in China's internal affairs. Qing Gan made the remarks in a phone conversation with his U.S. counterpart Antony Blinken. Urging the U.S. to stop harming China's sovereignty, security, and development interests in the name of competition. On his part, Blinken stressed the need for communication, saying the U.S. would continue to raise areas of concern as well as areas of potential cooperation. So joining us now on the line is Professor Victor Gao, chair professor with Suzhou University. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having.、Me. So, in this phone call, Qing Gao noted that the China-U.S. ties had encountered new difficulties and new challenges since the beginning of the year, and that the two sides had a responsibility to work together to manage differences, promote exchanges and cooperation, and stabilize their relations. So, Professor Gao. Um, in your understanding, who should bear the responsibility of these new challenges or new difficulties that the bilateral ties have encountered this year? You are raising a very important question. Everyone knows that China-U.S. relations have further deteriorated since the beginning of the year, and Secretary of State Blinken was originally scheduled to visit China as instructed. By the Chinese President Xi Jinping and the U.S. President、uh, Joe Biden when they met、uh, at the、uh, G20 summit in Indonesia. However, Secretary of State Blinken disregarded the joint decision by the two heads of state and decided not to come to China in early February. I think he is suffering the consequences of disobeying the joint decision by the two heads of state of China and the United States. Now the U.S. side has、uh, requested again and again and again for a meeting between Secretary of State Blinken and the Chinese State Councilor and Foreign Minister Qing Gang, and I think the fact that they actually had a phone call while it is very important also indicated that the two sides have not reached agreement as to whether or when Secretary of State Blinken could visit China.、Mm. I think it is very clear. That the United States is solely responsible for the continued deterioration of the China-U.S. relations because the United States is continuously violating China's sovereignty and territorial integrity, disregarding the core interest of China, which includes primarily the one-China policy that、mm. Taiwan is part of China, and the United States is really putting more and more pressure on China. As if, for example, they could hold China down. This is a time when I think China need to communicate to the United States where the responsibilities lie. It's not on China's part; it's on the U.S. side. And if they cannot realize that they are solely responsible for the continued、uh, deterioration of China-U.S. relations, there is simply no point, in my view, of Secretary of State Blinken to visit China. Therefore, I think the phone call, very important as it is, also indicated that China wanted to have the United States really come to terms with why and how the deterioration in bilateral relations took place, and how China and the United States can start to rebuild their relations, which need involve the United States fully respecting China's core interests, especially. Regarding the one-China policy, and 
Taiwan is part of China. Hmm. So apart from this Taiwan question, Professor Gao, why do you think, from China's perspective, the United States has、um, attempted to harm China's、uh, security, national sovereignty, and development interests in the name of competition? That's the words from、uh, Foreign Minister Qin Gang. Any specific examples、um, in this regard? First of all, I think Washington is really、uh, misguided. They worry about two nightmares. One is that Washington is continuously worrying about China surpassing the United States in terms of the size of the economy, and secondly, they also worry they suffer from the nightmare that they believe once China is a larger economy, China will impose its political system, ideology, ways of doing things on the United States. The reality is just the opposite. I think China's continuous development is a mega trend. No one can stop that. No one can really bring this whole process to an end. On the other hand, either in the past or at present or in the future, China will never impose its own political system or ideology on any other country, especially not on the United States. Why? Because China wants to treat every country in the world as an equal. China want to promote win-win cooperation rather than try to put itself on top of any other country. Therefore, I think between China and the United States, they need to do their joint effort to minimize misunderstanding, to enhance trust and understanding, rather than as、mm. Washington has been doing, try to block China's development. Now, this chips uh, uh, law, for、yeah. example.、Uh, Adopted by the United States, not only urging the U.S. chip companies, but also companies in, let's say, Japan, Republic of Korea, and China's Taiwan province, not to cooperate with China, is misguided. Is part of the strategy of hostility against China. But realistically speaking, this strategy will not work. It will only promote China to spend more and do more effort. In achieving independence and self-reliance in semiconductor businesses.、Mm. So, according to the readout of this particular phone call from the U.S. side, we understand. According to this readout from the U.S. side,、um, Blinken not only discussed the importance of maintaining open lines of communication to avoid miscalculation and conflict. But Blinken has also said that the U.S. would continue to raise areas of concern and areas of cooperation with China.、Um, what do you read from here? What do you think this tells us about, say, the Biden administration's、um, current mindset about China? I think the readout actually has several implications. One, the United States does want to have a face-to-face -face meeting. Uh, between、uh, Secretary of State Blinken and the Chinese State Councilor and Foreign Minister Qin Gang, they are almost desperate for such a face-to-face -face meeting. Secondly, they still do not、uh, define the real nature of the problem. China also wants to have such meetings. The more the meetings, the better. However, we need to uh, uh, decide from the very beginning what's the purpose of such meetings. Do these meetings? Enhance mutual understanding and minimize or remove misunderstandings between the two countries, or does the United States want to use such meetings to put more pressure on China and to refuse to acknowledge their own responsibilities for the deterioration of China-U.S. relations? Now, on the other hand, the U.S. has called China-U.S. relations as cooperation, competition, and.、Uh, Uh, uh, rivalry, for example, from the Chinese perspective,、uh, State Councilor and Foreign Minister Qin Gang said on many occasions that the competition, as used by the United States, actually means very vicious competition. It's not fair competition. For example, how can anyone agree with the United States when they want to use extreme measures to block cooperation? Between U.S. companies, Japanese companies, Korean companies, and China's Taiwanese companies, for example, from working with China in semiconductor chips. China, after all, is the biggest importer of lots of chips from the United States and these countries and regions in Taiwan.、Mm. So I think we need to really figure out 
who is really responsible for the deterioration of the relations between China and the United States. And the United States also need to uh, come to terms with the fact that they need to deal with China on equal terms. They cannot expect to impose its view on China. They cannot expect that China will need to uh, agree to a meeting with Secretary of State Blinken whenever they want, and they can walk away from a planned and scheduled meeting as agreed to between the two heads of states of China and the United States, and they cannot play China-U.S. relations as if it's a kindergarten game. Mm-hmm. They can be spoiled and they can do whatever they want if it suits their purposes. No, in dealing with China, demonstrate your sincerity, your earnestness, and your commitment to work with China to minimize misunderstanding and to maximize mutual understanding to overcome the problems, whatever they are, mm. in China-U.S. relations. Okay. So the final question before we let you go, Professor Gao, uh, this question is pretty much related to uh, something you alluded to earlier. Why do you think um, the Biden administration has been trying to promote this particular narrative most recently that uh, Washington has been trying hard to seek dialogue with Beijing, but Beijing has refused to talk to Washington. Why do you think they are trying to promote this narrative? First of all, this narrative is highly misleading and very much miscalculated. Uh, first of all, I think China wants to talk with the United States. China wants to uh, have more senior meetings with the United States. But the starting point for such meetings between China and the United States, including meetings between Secretary of State Blinken and his counterpart in China, uh, State Councilor and Foreign Minister Qing Gang, should be that such meetings should work to minimize misunderstanding, promote understanding, enhance mutual trust, rather than allowing the United States to use such meetings as an occasion to blackmail China, to push China to the corner to impose their version of the situation on China and not to treat China on equal terms, etc. If they want to do that, I personally hope there will be no such meeting because such meetings, if they take place, do not serve any purpose. Therefore, Mm. the United States need to really come to terms with a very important starting point. That is, why do you want to have such meetings? We do need to meet and we do need to minimize misunderstanding and prevent any miscalculation, of course. But if the starting point is for the United States to to put more pressure onto China, no, there will be no constructive purpose to be served on that condition. I think the ball is in the Washington's court. They need to come up with the right attitude about such meetings. And I believe if they can put themselves into the right mindset, the more meetings between China and the United States and the higher the level of such engagement, the better. Mm, Indeed. So we will look forward to see how things will turn out to be. But thank you very much. We have been speaking with Victor Gao, Chair Professor with Suzhou University. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, Income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. 
The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance, and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. U.S. President Joe Biden has met with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg at the White House, reiterating that the alliance is united in defending Ukraine. However, neither Biden nor Stoltenberg offered any clarity on who is likely to lead the alliance after Stoltenberg departs later this year. Stoltenberg's eventual successor is becoming a major focus for NATO behind the scenes. In European capitals, officials have been anxiously awaiting some signals from Washington regarding which candidates that President Biden is likely to support. So, joining us now on the line is Professor He Wenping, senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Dinhan, for having me. Okay. Yeah. So Biden, President Biden, claims that NATO is united in defending Ukraine. And actually, as the most recent piece of news, the U.S. Secretary of State、uh, Anthony Blinken has announced a new 325 million U.S. dollar package in new military assistance to Ukraine. But on the other hand, there is. Real difference within NATO concerning the pace and the nature of defense aid being delivered to Ukraine, as well as regarding Ukraine's bid for NATO membership, isn't there? Yes,、uh, you know, on the surface,、uh, both the United States and also those NATO, they want to show to the world、uh, that、uh, they are united as one、uh, when they are facing、uh, this Ukraine crisis. Uh, actually, when you look in the deeper、uh, to see uh, all those uh, uh, things going on,、uh, actually you 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 can't you couldn't get this kind of point saying they are united as one.、Uh, you know, different ways and the different uh, uh, those attitudes. Some are give a very warm、uh, lip service, and then some are make things in real.、Uh, you know, United States pushed very hard, and now in terms of all those weapons has been supplied. You know, send to the Ukraine. Of course, the United States is leading the way, and then followed like by the United Kingdom, so so on so forth. But actually,、uh, like we have seen,、uh, like even the、uh, French President Macron,、uh, you know, he recently he against、uh, this idea, saying the NATO、uh, will set up an office、uh, in Japan. So、uh, he doesn't buy this idea, saying NATO should be globalization,、uh, like uh, some uh, very uh, those hardest.、Uh, Uh, those uh, uh, voice coming from NATO, and also when they talk about the strategy towards Russia,、uh, I also noticed、uh, even one month or even three months ago, yeah, when uh, the uh, some voice saying、uh, maybe they need to destroy Russia in a thorough way, so on so forth, and then French、uh, this、uh, Paris this opinion also comes with another way.、Uh, Macron openly said、uh, it's not a good idea at all. Saying you push、uh, the Russia, the push the president Putin,、uh, Putin to the corner, and then make him、uh, no space to move around. So that's a dangerous idea. So you see, all of that、uh, we can make、uh, this NATO.、Uh, you know, even within the NATO itself, it's not that tightly、uh, share the same opinion, share the same strategy. Now with the NATO uh, Secretary General uh, like uh, Stoltenberg,、mm-hmm. now is about to leave. Yes. And because he, yeah, this Secretary General is is very,、uh, you know, symbolic and very toughest guy, and he has been leading、uh, this way、uh, about NATO, trying to expand this NATO as quickly as possible, and also a very tough way、uh, to, you know, to、uh, to deal with Russia. But now with he, him,、uh, this guy,、uh, toughest guy, about to leave. Now there's no picture, a、uh, clear picture yet. Who、mm. are going to be replace him? And then this、uh, coming up, a new Secretary General will be as tough as him, or or come up with another idea. 
so those things are remain not clear at all. Hmm. So. Uh, regarding the next、uh, candidate for NATO chief, currently two possible contenders are mentioned most often in diplomatic circles. One is the Danish Prime Minister Mati Frederiksen, and another is the British Defence Secretary Ben Wallace.、Uh, of course, regarding the the、uh, you know the respective prospects of these two politicians taking over the position from Stoltenberg. Uh, they face、uh, different level of difficulties, I guess, and they have their different conditions. But、uh, generally speaking, when we talk about, say, choosing a NATO Secretary General, why do you think the opinion from、uh, from the United States matter, and why do you think President Biden is yet to endorse any candidates at this point? Oh, I think、uh, from the White House opinion,、uh, of course, they want to. Uh, choose uh, one similar like uh, uh, Stoltenberg. Uh, you know this this kind of、uh, share the same tone on the same page. You know as closely as they can、uh, with the White House. Of course, otherwise、uh, the United States cannot be uh, like uh, saying now they are playing the leading role. Americans leading、uh, this、uh, leadership role now totally coming back.、Uh, before you know Donald Trump has been talking so many years about. American first, American first. But eventually, he couldn't make it happen. But、uh, when Joe Biden took the office,、uh, of course, it's not because Biden、uh, more smarter, you know,、uh, than、uh, than the, his、uh, predecessor. But it's because、uh, this Ukraine crisis、uh, coming out. So that is why, because all the European country, like NATO members,、uh, they are facing this kind of challenge. So that is uh, uh, make uh, the Biden now say now American first. Uh, American leadership now eventually coming back, and he also、uh, united those NATO countries and European countries, EU members、uh, as much as he can. So that is why he doesn't want,、uh, from Biden's perspective, he doesn't want to lose uh, this uh, leadership role.、Uh, he had already、uh, made a lot of effort, and also coming from this Ukraine crisis, now becoming such a high、uh, position now. So suppose、uh, if the Uh, coming up, the new Secretary General of NATO,、uh, you know,、uh, hasn't、uh, taken the same、uh, this phase,、uh, this step, and uh, uh, you know all the attitudes、uh, like this、uh, predecessor. So maybe this、uh, American leadership also is、uh, unshakable.、Uh, maybe no longer that firm as、uh, it used to be、uh, in this recent、uh, one or two years. That is why Biden now remains、uh, in the considerable process. Uh, they want to see more clear about、uh, what's going on about the two candidates. Which one、uh, maybe better?、Uh, which one is uh, closer uh, with、uh, you know the the Americans、uh, those、uh, attitudes or stance? I think those are the things now they are remain、uh, in the consideration.、Mm. So the final question before we let you go, and briefly, I mean, when we talk about which country a NATO secretary is originally from. To what extent do you think it really matters to the alliance's actual policy direction in the future? Briefly. Yes, I think it really matters. Yeah, which country、uh, this Secretary General from? For example, as uh, uh, this uh, uh, sitting one,、uh, Stoltenberg, he's from Sweden. Are、uh, you know、mm. Sweden also? He's very, from Norway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very <laughs> eager. Oh yeah,、uh, very because they're bordered with、uh, Russia. Yes. And also, they are very eager to join、uh, NATO immediately. After this、uh, Ukraine crisis、uh, broke out, so because they're very close, they used to be.、Uh, they think they have a very painful history, so so on so forth. But suppose、uh, if those NATO Secretary General、uh, come not coming from those Nordic country,、uh, no matter Sweden, Finland, or like uh, uh, Norway, uh, if they suppose coming from、uh, like a South Europe country,、uh, like so, they they don't feel、uh, that close,、uh, you know, with Russia. They don't、mm. feel that more challenge,、uh, you know, in a very vivid way. So maybe the the opinion will be quite quite different. Yeah, country from Nordic.、Mm, indeed, because NATO currently contains 31 member states, and their interests are not really totally in alignment with one another. But thank you very much. We have been speaking with Dr. He Wenping. We'll be back after a short break. I am Dan Wang. 
Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China. The world today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. China's central bank has cut a short-term rate to boost market expectations. The People's Bank of China lowered a seven-day reverse repo rate to 1.9 percent, down from the previous 2 percent. This move is the first of its kind in some 10 months. The central bank says the cut aims to keep liquidity ample in the banking system. Reverse repo rate, for your information, is the rate at which a country's central bank borrows money from commercial lenders within the country. It is a monetary policy instrument that can be used to control money supply. So, for more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Dr. Zhou Mi from the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So, Dr. Zhou, thank you for your time. First, how do you think the recent credit rate cut has acted as a cushion for the LPR decrease, and can it actually further lower the financing costs for enterprises? Yeah, I believe that they really will reduce the cost of the enterprises when they are going to. Borrows money from the banks. Actually, the IPR is not only a kind of、uh, things happened between the borrowers and the lenders. It will reflect the trend about the cost of the financial borrowings, not only from the banks, but also in the different kind of financial products, like the the operation in the business environment. They also depend on the IPR to. to To decide their return rates and the profits. So when we're talking about that, I have to say that China is performing our a little bit different ways about the interest rate in recent years or times compared with United States because we are keeping our lower interest rate, trying to give the the enterprises a much easier environment for their doing business. So it is a, a kind of logic that we are providing a sustainable and continuous. Uh, low cost for the enterprises to reduce their cost.、Mm. And what is the outlook for the monetary policy moving forward for this year? I believe that we will still keep a fairly low interest rate to provide a better environment for the business,、uh, because when、uh, we, we are in a very hard time, I mean, not only in China but also in the world, we have so many uncertainties. So. If we are going to give the enterprises more support, we should try to provide them with a more predictable environment, including the cost of the business and the finance.、Mm. And to support the real economy, China's top economic planner or the NDRC also issued measures to lower the business costs and sectors of technological innovation or key industrial chains will enjoy tailor-made tax and fee cuts. So, what's the significance? Of that, yeah, actually, it's a different、um, measurement by the monetary policies. So we're talking about the businesses. We're not only talking about the the virtual economy. We're trying to make a bigger or stronger support to the real economy,、mm. as the manufacturings are facing a very important pressures by the uncertainty supply chains. So we are going to reduce their cost in doing that for the. For the tax, I think it's a kind of very important、uh, income for the government. But when we are trying to decide how much we will take from the、uh, increase of the industries, we are trying to leave them more rooms for the enterprises. After they are getting bigger, they are stronger. I think that the the taxes can be collected to、mm. support many other usage, like the public. Usage of、uh, different resources. So nowadays, we are trying to support the enterprises because、uh, there are many,、uh, you know, uh, uh, stop or the breakout of the supply chains, which has put many enterprises under very big strength、uh, supply of the resources. Mm. And the small and medium-sized enterprises, or SMEs, is quite important for China's economy. So, what are their main challenges right now? And for SMEs, the、uh, top economic planner said、uh, financial services will become more inclusive and accessible to strengthen the credit support to them. And what else do they need? 
Actually, uh, I agree that uh, SMEs are very important, not only to bring more jobs, to provide the employment, the taxes, the import and export. They are main innovation centers for China and for many other countries because they are trying to uh, explore more rooms in this regard. So how can we support them? We are not only trying to reduce their cost as a taxes, as a tariffs or any other kind of uh, financial cost. We should try to provide better environment for them to develop. Actually, uh, one of the ways is trying to provide the platforms to collect the uh, ability, the strength of the SMEs, trying to provide them with uh, better connections to the main market in the world. So by this uh, kind of collective cooperation, I believe that SMEs are coming, becoming better and stronger in the competition in the world with uh, their partners from other countries. Mm. And the government will also improve the construction of national logistics hubs to build a modern logistics system. So how will that help the economy, do you think? Yeah, logistics has been approved to be one of the very efficient ways for us to improve our economy by reducing the cost and trying to provide a better and shorter time in the ways. Actually, uh, I, I think that uh, the policies, including the code logistic and other uh, the the logistics hubs, are giving better uh, support for the enterprises if they want to meet the demand of the market. Actually, nowadays we see that uh, Chinese cities are developing in different uh, dimensions, and one of them they are not trying to become the bigger and the bigger cities. Well, in the clusters of the different cities, or we call it the city circles. So trying to provide a better support to meet the diversified and the improvement of this market, we should try to change the logistic behaviors. Mm. Actually, I think that the market is doing that by improving the efficiency to meet the demand in the shortened time and also guarantee the supply of the very fresh things like the fruits from the south to the north in this summer. Mm. And as we say that uh, the foreign trade is quite an important pillar for China's economy and China's imports and exports expanded by 4.7% in the first five months of this year. So, Dr. Zhou, what do you think about China's export resilience for the rest of the year? Yeah, I have to say that uh, 4.7% is not a very big number compared with the performance that we had in the past years. But it's still very not easy to get because the world is under such a big pressure and uncertainty. So for China's export, I think that there are at least the two ways we have to observe this fact. The first one is that how about the demand? How about the market in other countries? Actually, we see a lot of uh, inflations and in the developed economies. But at the same time, we are seeing more recovery from the developing and uh, the emerging economies. So in this regard, I think that maybe we should try to address the change of the structure of the market. Well, another angle is about China's own ability to supply uh, the market with uh, different things. Well, for China, I think the capacity is uh, uh, restructuring and it is enhancing, and not only in the traditional ways, but trying to provide better support, like for the new energy uh, products, uh, EVs, and also the uh, solar panels and other things. Mm. I think that both sides should try to cooperate with each other to have a better resilience is not only good for China, but also very important for other countries. And also for the unemployment issue, more than 11 million college graduates are set to enter the job market this year. So are there new occupations? What could be done to stabilize the job market? Yeah, I agree with you that now uh, my students ask me, how can she find a very good job? I, I think it's a really big impact in this hard time, because that uh, so many enterprises are not only faced by the competition from other countries, but also the technology improvement. So in this regard, I think that we should hug for the development of the new technology, trying to support enterprises to upgrade and improve their technology involvement in the supply chains by the digital economies or artificial uh, intelligence, different kind of tools to reduce the cost and become more competitive in this regard. Well, another angle is that we should try to get more uh, combination of the traditional ways of manufacturing and the services to improve the comprehensive uh, competitiveness and meet the different demand of the different society or the different separated markets in the world. 
Dr. Zhou Mi from the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has blasted quote the most evil and heinous abuse of power unquote after pleading not guilty to federal charges in a Miami courthouse. Trump delivered an inflammatory speech from his golf club in New Jersey after returning from Florida, where he became the first former U.S. president to be federally indicted. Trump has also lashed out at the Biden administration. Accusing it of a politically motivated pursuit, Trump has faced the most serious criminal charges related to national security that the federal prosecutors can bring, including the willful retention of classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago resort after leaving office. So joining us now on the line is Joseph Gregory Mahoney, professor of politics and international relations with East China Normal University. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, do you think Mr. Trump is、um, seeking to turn his legal walls into political gain heading into the 2024 election? I suspect he has at least three strategies.、Uh, first, he's clearly capitalizing on this financially and politically,、uh, using it to rally his supporters and raise more money for his campaign. Second, he's doing something that famous people sometimes do in highly publicized cases, and that is trying to poison potential jurors with his message that this is politically motivated to make it impossible to seat an impartial jury or to ensure at least one juror will vote against convicting him. And third, he's continuing his narrative of being a victim of the system, which many of his supporters believe to be true and believe him to be their champion against what they view as political elites like Biden, who they believe act without、uh, impunity,、uh, or even the so-called deep state, and so on. Now, each of these three strategies offers. Possible political gains.、Mm. So some legal experts say they are surprised by this level of、um, evidence laid out in this、uh, particular Department of Justice case, which includes charges of conspiracy to obstruction of justice, concealing documents in a federal investigation, and making false statements. Um, so, is there, frankly speaking, is there any sign that this was、um, politically orchestrated by the Biden administration? You know, it's clear that the level of details provided in the indictment,、uh, which is uncommon, and, and all the more so in cases involving national security, aims to counter impressions that this is politically motivated, and to instead portray this. As an impartial and apolitical matter of law, necessary for safeguarding the country. Now, on the one hand, I'm inclined to believe the indictment is factual, because if it isn't, then those in the Justice Department who've advanced this case will eventually face extreme political and legal risks themselves, and they know this very well. On the other hand, every aspect of this case, including the alleged crimes, even if true. Are political, and keep in mind this involves perhaps the most polarizing political figure in、uh, American history, who's already been impeached twice, who's currently facing other potential charges, who's recently lost a sexual harassment suit, and who's still his party's front runner despite having lost the last election, despite being responsible in part for the attack on the Capitol, and despite. Winning originally without winning the popular vote. In some, it's impossible to change many of his supporters' minds. It's also impossible to prove this case isn't politically motivated. And among those who believe it is, are many Democrats who are glad to see the charges laid, whether they're politically motivated or not.、Mm, indeed. So, I mean, if Mr. Trump is convicted, then the maximum prison term for each count. Could range from five to twenty years. Do you think this is likely to be what is waiting for Trump eventually? Trump does face legal,、uh, serious legal jeopardy.、Uh, however, even if the charges are based on facts, and even if these are clearly established in court, it's far from certain that he'll be convicted. 
All it takes is just one of his supporters on the jury, or not even a supporter, simply someone who concludes that it's reasonable to believe these charges are politically motivated and therefore reasonable to doubt his guilt. Consequently, we should not be surprised if Biden pardons Trump and justifies this presidential privilege as avoiding a potential constitutional crisis, but above all, to avoid the circus Trump will uh, create and manipulate. Now, if Biden did this, it would make it look like Trump owes Biden, which Trump would dis, uh, despise, and it would deflate Trump's ability to exploit th this situation further. It would also confuse a lot of Republican voters, but above all, independent and swing voters who will be inclined to view Biden as being fair and merciful. However, even if this is resolved quickly in court, and I don't think it will be, and even if it results in a conviction, Trump likely initiate a lengthy appeals process that would ultimately end up at the Supreme Court. Now, this could then provoke another constitutional crisis in so much as some of those justices were appointed by him. Nevertheless, assuming this second uh, scenario, we're talking potentially about years to resolve. Before then, he might be reelected or another Republican elected who could then choose to pardon him. Or because he's already an old man, it might be the case that age catches up with him mm. or that he's no longer deemed competent or he passes away. Whatever happens, it's very unlikely he'll ever see real prison time despite hyping this threat himself. Okay, I see. So we understand actually since this latest indictment uh, being announced, many of Trump's you know usual political allies have come to his defense. But other Republicans, including some of the really veteran, for the, for example, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, these people they have been largely, you know, taken a a sort of more detached uh, view or attitude. So, Professor, what do you think this tells us? In fact, some prominent Republicans are already calling on him to quit the race. But if you parse carefully statements by, uh, made by some of his Republican competitors, you'll see there's already some hedging happening. Uh, some are not defending him explicitly, but arguing there's a double standard at work, uh, pointing to a previous case involving Hillary Clinton, who was not prosecuted despite also mishandling classified information and an ongoing case involving President Biden. Now, these three cases, however, are very different. Biden is a sitting president and he has privileges. Clinton was investigated, but it was determined that her actions did not rise to willful intent. Nevertheless, the way the FBI handled her case, which included leaking details at the last moment in her race against Trump, is believed to have played a factor in her loss. But the bottom line is that many Republican voters do believe Clinton and Biden have abused the system, and many still believe that Biden stole the election from Trump, that Trump should be the lawful president now, and therefore all of this should be moot. Okay. Thank you, as always. That was Dr. Joseph Gregory Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations with East China Normal University. You are listening to World Today. Stay with us. Hello everyone, this is Zoon Ahmed Khan, journalist from Pakistan, currently based in Tsinghua University. World Today is an excellent initiative to discuss current affairs by including experts from across the globe. I've always enjoyed our thought-provoking discussions and wish the team even more success and impact in the future. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. In the U.S., an Associated Press analysis has found that fraudsters have potentially stolen more than 280 billion U.S. dollars in federal COVID-19 relief aid over the past three years. In the meantime, another 123 billion has been wasted. Together, the loss represents 10% of the COVID-19 relief funding that the U.S. government has dispersed so far. Fraudsters reportedly used the social security number of dead people and federal prisoners to get unemployment checks. 
In the meantime, there was also said to be a failure to cross-check federal loan applicants against a Treasury Department database, which could have raised the red flags about undeserving borrowers. So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Edward Lehman, Managing Director of Lehman Lee and Shila Firm. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Dean. Great to be here. So, at this point, there is no official number regarding how much money has been stolen or wasted, but the U.S. government has charged more than 2,000 defendants with some pandemic-related fraud crimes, and the government is now conducting thousands of investigations in this regard. And I guess the actual number in loss could be much higher than the AP analysis. What is your feeling about this? Oh, I, no doubt. I mean, I think that the, we've just scratched the surface with regards to the amount of fraud that was going on. It was almost what I guess Sebastian Younger called his book "The Perfect Storm." I mean, it was a situation where we had a so-called epidemic or national epidemic, which was shutting down facilities and was、uh, making it very difficult for people to go into work and then also to participate,、um, you know, in in、uh, activities of running the business. Businesses that were participating during the COVID,、um, you know, the COVID、uh, pandemic, and so I think it's highly likely the actual amount of money stolen or wasted in the federal COVID nineteen relief aid exceeds by far the estimates provided by the、um, what's come out by the Associated Press analysis. The number of defendants charged with fraud crimes and ongoing investigations indicate that the problem may be more significant than initially reported, and the scale of the fraud. Of the number of cases being pursued by the federal government, by the Justice Department, suggests that the total loss could be higher than what has been uncovered so far. I think that it, part of it has been just—it's very embarrassing about the amount of crime that happened,、uh, where people were taking advantage of an unfortunate situation.、Mm. So basically, the federal COVID nineteen relief aid. We are talking about here represented the largest rescue package in the history of America. Meaning, never before has there been so much federal emergency money being injected into the U.S. economy in such a quick manner. Some agencies, like the Small Business Administration, according to、uh, some media reports, they were, you know, really. Somehow overwhelmed by the amount of money they had to handle and give out to these uh to to their、uh, potential beneficiaries. So with that in mind, do you think the money that was stolen and wasted in this、um, process was actually inevitable and even understandable? Well, certainly it was inevitable. I mean, understandable. I guess it's human nature. You know, whenever there's money to be made, then you know, then people will go ahead and take advantage of that. Let me give you a story. Okay, I'm involved in law, so and, and I went to law school in the United States. And one of my classmates from undergrad. I mean, each of the businesses,、uh, including law firms, were actually you know were given checks. One law firm, which is medium sized law firm, not a huge law firm. Uh, that was a friend of mine. They were given a check, a relief check, a loan for two million dollars. That's right, two million dollars for the pandemic. And、um, so the partners were, you know, got this loan so that they could get through those difficult times. And it was, it was sort of in the beginning. It wasn't at the end of the three years.、Um, and then later, the, the government voted to to actually give it as a grant money, so they didn't have to pay that money back. The partners, you know, in their、uh, which shall remain nameless, the firm and the organization, but they decided to divide that up among partners、um, as two million dollars of funds that went to the organization. So, I mean, the large—that's just a, one example in、uh, you know the state of Indiana, the city of Indianapolis, and just describing that while the large-scale relief aid was necessary、uh, to address the economic challenges caused by the pandemic. So, in that case. They had to pay the rent. They had to pay salaries. Service industry was slowing up. Government gave them a check, and they went ahead and did whatever they wanted with it. But it's important to acknowledge that the speed at which the funds were dispersed, and the immense pressure faced by the agencies to distribute the money quickly, created vulnerabilities for fraud and waste. There's no doubt about it. I don't know how much money Harvard University, which has many billions of dollars in their endowment, was given as aid relief. It's not necessarily、uh, a question of inevitability, but rather a consequence 
of the urgent circumstances and the lack of adequate oversight and restrictions during the early stages of the relief effort. We can look that back in 2020 vision, certainly now, in retrospect, that while the challenges faced by the agencies in managing the funds are understandable, it's crucial to enhance the accountability in the implementation of stricter controls to prevent such mm. losses in the future. So unless we learn from the past, we're condemned to repeat those mistakes. Yeah. So, I mean, the pandemic might be over in the United States, but on Capitol Hill, uh, U.S. lawmakers are still engaged in some sort of really fierce debate over the success of the COVID-19 relief spending and who is to blame for the theft we are talking about here. Republicans basically argue too much government money was the breeding ground for fraud, waste, and even inflation. While Democrats have countered that, you know, all these uh, financial muscle from the government have saved the lives, businesses, and jobs. What is your thought on this? Well, the debate surrounding the success of the COVID-19 relief spending and and assigning blame for the theft is largely influenced by political perspective. So, like you said, there's a polarization. The folks on the left, they're going to say, in the Democratic Party, you know, that are extremists in that party are going to say one thing. The folks on the right and the Republicans and the extremists on that side are going to say something completely different. What the truth is remains somewhat in between. And the, those things are matched by the outcome of, you know, what we've seen um, in the debates on Capitol Hill. Re- Republicans tend to argue that excessive government spending created opportunities for fraud and waste which may lead to inflationary pressures. And that's what we've seen right now. I mean, we remember, they just kept printing up money. I'm just so people understand this clearly. We printed up money. And on the other hand, the Democrats emphasize that there's a positive impact of government support in saving lives, preserving businesses, and protecting jobs. I mean, both sides have valid points to consider. While it's important to acknowledge the achievements of relief efforts in mitigating economic impact of the pandemic, it's equally crucial to address the vulnerabilities that have allowed fraud and waste. Striking a balance between the financial support and the effective oversight is the key to ensuring ensuring success of relief spending in the future. Now, mm. what I can say for one thing that is sure is that a lot of this was diversionary and it was it placated uh, folks by getting these these funds. Mm. And uh, but now the yeah. the, you know, the can has been kicked down the road and there's responsibility there. Yeah, but thank you very much. That was Dr. Edward Lehman. Thank you very much for joining us. Unfortunately, that's all the time for this edition of World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.